Welcome to episode 24 of season 2 of the Search with Candor podcast. My name is Jack Chambers Ward, and this week I am not joined by Cindy Crum, as I promised last week, I'm afraid. Cindy's episode will actually be coming out next week, but I am, don't worry folks, joined by my co-host, Mr. Mark Williams-Cook. Welcome back, Mark. I'm back. Hey, Mark's back. So we will be talking about the latest in SEO and PPC news, including some updated Google documentation about product-rich results, the results of ERA's third state of link building report, the new on-page feature from Citrix, as well as an update on the ongoing Primark website saga, Bing testing insert voucher codes, and the history of Google in a lovely little interactive infographic from Google themselves. Search for Canada is supported by Systrix, the SEO's toolbox. Go to systrix.com SWC if you want to check out some of their fantastic free tools, such as their Instagram hashtag generator, href lang validator, checking out your site's visibility index, and the Google update tracker. We'll actually be diving into some of their new on-page features later on in the show. Well, to mark my triumphant return to the podcast, I thought I would start you with the incredibly interesting subject of updated documentation. Ooh, that means Google documentation. That's at least relevant, not just <laughs> so, random documentation. Yeah. So this is actually from Sitebulb. So um, Sitebulb actually has a little service that you can subscribe to that triggers email notifications when Google updates their structured data documentation which probably sounds like a very incredibly boring sentence to people who don't work in SEO. <laughs> but it is pretty relevant for those of us that do, because obviously there are some very objective right and wrongs when it comes to structured data. And it is fairly easy to muck it up or not do the best possible job. So I, I got this email alert on the 17th of June, uh, so like five days ago, just saying that Google had updated their docs for the product rich results to clarify that product rich results are only supported for pages that focus on a single product, including product variants where each product variant has a distinct URL. So to unwrap that, as I said, a lot of very similar words <laughs> in the same sentence, what this means is we know that of course, the product rich result structured data is for single product pages. What maybe wasn't quite so clear is if you are selling, for instance, a t-shirt and that one product, that one t-shirt comes in four different colors, you may have like say a drop down box where you can select the color. And in some instances, this will change the URL. So there's actually an image which we'll link to at search.withcanda.co.uk for the show notes, where it shows two t-shirts and one has the query string color equals green. So there was, I think, some confusion there about people thinking, well, do I need separate product kind of structured data for all of these different variations of the product or is it is it just one? So Google has clarified that that there should only be the one product rich result for that whole product, including all of its variations. So you're not meant to do it for all of the separate ones. And that, that makes sense. But 
I kind of read that and I was like, okay, cool. That's nice, easy clarification. And it did then trigger uh, some other possibilities, which is when SEO starts to get a little bit complicated and, yeah. and messy. The one they touch on here straight away with the, the blue and the green t-shirt comparison you mentioned, they say like, whichever one's best, pick the best one and then canonicalize that. I'm like, okay. It's not as simple as that, Google, but sure. It's like, blue's the best, so pick blue. It's like, <laughs> I guess if blue is the best selling, like if, if what happens if blue, red, and green are selling really well, but the yellow one doesn't sell quite as well, do we should that need like, it's, yeah, it's a weird thing. There's this, like you said, they have this particular wording in Google documentation that is often very wordy and very technically focused. And then sometimes just gets a bit vague where it's like, pick one and you'll be fine. It's like, well, that might matter greatly going outside of like product rich results and stuff. Which one is featured could massively affect your click through rate and things like that, depending on, oh, on just a whim, I'll pick the blue one. And turns out you probably should have picked the green one all along. That could be a massive difference in terms of, you know, your business and revenue and stuff like that. But they're just like, ah, don't worry about it. It seems fairly casually. Exactly. So what I was thinking about here in this example is, you know, say you're selling an Elvis t-shirt, right? And you sell it in white and yellow and green. Now, there might theoretically be searches for like yellow Elvis t-shirt. Yeah. And if yeah. you are canonicalizing these and you're only using the one set of structured data, the logic is, well, you're you're less likely to rank than if you had an individual URL with a optimized title, etc. So at least for me, at the beginning level of what is best practice, it would suggest to me that, okay, assuming we take that at face value that we should do as Google says for, I'm sure there are other things happening in the background outside the kind of like sphere of SEO that are, re are relevant to this in terms of what Google's doing. But it would then say to me from an SEO e-com strategy point of view, okay, maybe we should look at um, grouping together what we can in terms of variance at a category level. So if we have a certain set of t-shirts that are like green, but we can't target those on a product level, but their search volume, we should make a category that is indexable and searchable. And obviously we're not using product um, rich data on a category level, but it allows us at least to target the search terms that are going to be looking for those variants. And that makes sense because it will be the cumulative search volume, search intent of all the products for that name of variation, whatever, you know, if it's a certain cut, a certain size, a certain color. Yeah, because you can have variations of, not only do you have the t-shirt in blue and green, you have it in small, medium, large, extra large, extra, extra large, triple XL, quadruple XL in a different fabric. You can have it in 100% cotton or a polyester cotton blend or organic cotton versus synthetic. Like there's so many variations there. It seems bizarre that we're just, I, I mean, it makes sense. I, I've done this with e-com clients before where you do like kind of focus on one thing. You know that a multi-pack of a thing sells particularly well or or is ranking particularly well or whatever it is use some data there to kind of pick your best option rather than doing it bloodly I've, there's a single option a multi-pack option and then like a mega like 100 pack option or something like that canonicalizing the other two to one of them does make sense like you said you, you then can like focus your seo efforts there but also as you said you have the opportunity you, you potentially lose the opportunity for a lot of that long tail stuff right if people are looking for multi-packs and there's a slightly different intent if you're looking for a single item that can come in a multi-pack. 
say there could be like a B2C versus B2B difference there. Multi-packs are bought by businesses, but a single item might be bought by an individual. You then run into issues of like, well, am I ranking a multi-pack for a thing? Does that match the user's intent? There's so many complications that can come in here. SEO is super easy, really. <laughs> the other the other thing I mentioned is, yeah, if, if you're targeting the variations at category level, I tend, when I work with e-com clients, to think about what actually people are searching for in terms of affecting their purchase intent. So to give you an example, like color is a reasonable one. People might well search for, you know, red running shoes or whatever it is. I think size, in my experience, whether it's t-shirts, shoes, whatever, is less relevant at the point of search because you assume they are going to sell your size unless of course obviously you're looking at you know for size 14 shoes or something yeah. maybe I'm, you need I'm, a, I'm a size 13 so i have that problem yeah. sometimes but generally like you know people aren't going to be buying shoes because of the size they're going to be buying them because of the color the design so they make more sense to have as indexable search. yeah and you then use the on-page filters or whatever it is to then sort through and find out what's available in my size what's available in green all that kind of stuff so yeah I mean, that's exactly, that's exactly what I do. You know, I search for say like blue high tops and then I go and then I filter to, okay, would you actually have any of my size? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. As I said, if you're not subscribed to it, I think it's really worth it. It doesn't cost anything. You've got the site bulb notifications for when structured data does change. And just these little bits, like, like we've triggered this whole conversation of this (laughs) one clarification does sometimes make you take a step back and think about the kind of overall SEO strategy. We'll put a link to um, the site bulb notifications at the podcast notes, which are at search.withcanda.co.uk. We have another um, thing in our theme of being doing new things that Google isn't doing. And tying in with e-com as well. We're kind of sticking with the e-commerce side of things. We are. Which is that Bing has been testing insert voucher codes. Now, I have tried to find more information about this. I saw this story on Search Engine Roundtable. Um, and Barry Schwartz, who reported it, also apparently cannot find more information on this. So I'm just going to read the excerpt. And again, we'll put the link to the um, original article we found on Search Engine Roundtable from um, Barry's comment on this, which is, if you search for some brands like Nike, Adidas, etc., you may see Microsoft Bing show a coupon element in the search result snippet. This seems to be an organic feature, at least is not an ad on the Bing search results. Frank Sandman, a German SEO consultant, tipped me off to this, and after much trial and error, I was able to replicate this and can confirm it was not a browser extension or plugin. And there's a really neat animated GIF of a search for Adidas on Bing search results, and there's a little box underneath the meta description which says four coupons available. Um, wherever when, when you hover over it, it says we found four coupons, and then it essentially directly lists the coupon codes what what percentage you get off and it's got like a copy and go link interestingly i did see in the article as well it says that third party cookies are required for this quote unquote feature interesting which makes me think there is probably some affiliate money changing hands yeah so this is why it interested me yeah. because obviously if i was a coupon affiliate I would be like throwing my laptop at the wall <laughs> and rage at this for, 
you know, search engines kind of beating you to the hop. And of course there are, you know, there's, there's been like the browser extensions and stuff that will automatically detect the site you're on and just give you voucher codes yeah. for when you're in checkout. The most famous one, if you've ever heard it sponsored on a podcast because they sponsored every podcast for a while, is Honey. Not a sponsor of the podcast, I hasten to add, but they're probably the biggest example of that where they're like, you're literally throwing money away. We'll find all the savings and discounts and coupon codes for you and stuff. But yeah, I've never seen it happen in a SERP without, as, as Barry and as you just said, Mark, like without an extension or a plugin adding that extra step. This is bizarre yeah. to me. I mean, seems, seems weird to me. In, as a user, I'm kind of okay with it because I, I've literally given up trying to use voucher sites because... You told I, this story before. Yeah, I can't <laughs> remember one where I've actually got a code that worked. And the, re you know, the reason is, basically, the affiliate doesn't really care if they work. All they want you to do is get that cookie so they get their commission and just be like, oh, sorry, yeah, yeah, and no, it didn't work. So if there are any other kind of systems where it is verified that they're live vouchers, even if it's directly from the retailer, you know, I'm, I'm kind of for that as a user. And actually, from an SEO point of view, it's something I've recommended sometimes e-commerce clients do, which is to have a coupon voucher page mm, on their yes. site so that they appear when someone searches for their brand name of vouchers. So you can tell people if you have any kind of live vouchers they can use. Because I've seen, obviously, sometimes when there's no um, current discount running, people get to a checkout page and they're like, oh, there's a voucher code box. That means I'm probably, I could get some money off. And they go away and they try and find vouchers and then they can't find one and they get frustrated and they feel like they shouldn't be paying that much and then they just abandon the basket. <laughs> Whereas if you can say like, you know, we, we currently don't have any voucher codes live then, yeah. or hide the voucher box, you know, there's, there's lots of ways. It's an interesting kind of user experience thing um, of letting someone know that other people are getting money off but you can't have it for, you know, because you haven't jumped through whatever hoop yeah, it is. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, there's no more information I could dig up on that. So I'm very interested to see if that's going to stick around. And I don't know. And it seems nobody knows at the moment where they're getting the voucher data from. So as I mentioned at the top of the show, we've got a new on-page feature from Systrix. They are now pre-checking domains for you. So if you have... The list of domains you can see the winners and losers if you go into the uh domain section once you're logged into systrix you can scroll down have a look around you see what's what's going up what's going down some of your favorites and some of your saved domains if you saved your clients or your own sites in there they're actually pre-checking domains so you can get a very quick glimpse at what you need to fix on your website essentially it's a similar kind of breakdown into like errors warnings notices kind of that prioritized list of issues on your site at the moment from an on-page perspective kind of thing you would see in other tools but this is instantaneous this is not a oh i now i need to crawl my site and go through the process things are pre-checked so everything is super duper fast when you're using the on-page part of systrix which is lovely to see we've also got an update on the what has now become kind of like the the co-pilot of the systrix part of the show is primark <laughs> the primark website steve has kicked us off steve that is steve payne from systrix who we had on the show previously who also talked about Primark while he was here in the studio. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, recently updated their site, migrated everything and changed everything to an essentially what looks like an e-commerce site for all intents and purposes, except you can't buy anything on it. And there was this big discussion about whether that serves user intent and 
would an informational site be able to rank for alongside other e-commerce terms? Like if you're using a transactional intent keyword, will an informational site where you can't purchase anything actually end up ranking for that keyword? Interestingly, they are now <laughs> trialing a click and collect service. So maybe, <laughs> maybe they've seen the error of their ways or this was the plan all along. I don't know. But yeah, they're trialing a very, very limited stuff with some, I believe it's like children's clothing and stuff like that. They're planning to do some click and collect stuff. I floated this out to my wife and a few other people here in the studio a couple of days ago and everybody was something like, oh, that's interesting. And whether it's like, it has to be in your local store or you can order it from store to store or something like that. Because with Primark warehouses, there's often quite a lot of difference in availability and even the products that are available as a whole from, you know, what's available in London is not necessarily available here in Norwich. So just just from anecdotally, people seem interested, but it's a it's, it's an interesting move from Primark, I think. Why do you think they've chosen that specific category? I was wondering that. I'm not sure. Do you have any theories, any ideas? I think, I mean, Lauren from our team, I think it was put forward that maybe people are struggling um, to take kind of young children into Primark because yep. the few times I've been in there, it's pretty busy and kind of <laughs> chaotic. And, you know, if you if you leave a child unattended for a second, they're going to disappear <laughs> yeah. into the, you know, into the racks of clothes. So I thought that was an interesting maybe. Yeah, definitely. Like from a shopping experience point of view maybe and even if like you know you've got say you've got nursery and school pickup times and you've got a full-time job as well or whatever it is you've got less time to wander around a massive shop and browse for stuff right if you can do that in the evenings and then just straight after the school run go and pick it up then yeah it gives you the opportunity there yeah i i don't know the answer to that i'd be really interested if anyone else has any kind of theories but yeah the, i thought lawrence was interesting which was the maybe these are the people that would benefit most from kind of being able to browse mm. in a in a different in a different way the wording from primark themselves is they are looking to particularly uh, the, the the range will be particularly attractive for our customers who do not regularly shop in our larger stores so i think lauren uh, is very much onto something there in terms of trying to tempt people to purchase who maybe don't have the time to go into the stores directly so interestingly and unhelpfully which is my speciality. <laughs> <laughs> I did actually notice Primark ranking for some commercial product terms while I was doing some research for a pitch we were going to do. So I was doing, um, again, just searching for some products and I saw, oh wow, Primark's actually ranking for these product terms on their, their new site. That's the interesting part. The unhelpful part is for the life of me I've been sitting here trying to remember what it was I googled <laughs> and I can't remember I search for a lot of different things every day and I don't know whether it's that you know that effect when you notice something and you're always on the lookout for it so whether I would have noticed Primark before and they've already been there but because we've been having so many conversations about them I'm like oh, there they are yeah but yeah seem to remember it because I was like oh it's like a, it wasn't a mega competitive term but I was like this is definitely like a I want to buy online term and they were like third or fourth so yeah i am now going to record if i see them <laughs> and try and keep an eye on that but i mean we got some data didn't we from from steve about um, primark sort of in comparison to bmm and it, you know they're certainly not storming away yet i think is no fair to say. yeah yeah they i've got a little note here from steve kind of comparing and analyzing them from a towels perspective so the reason he picked out towels is 
both of those stores offer it. There are similar sort of sizes in terms of categories and stuff. And they're both without the delivery service because B&M have recently pivoted to trial home delivery service on their website. So in a similar kind of parallel move from B&M compared to Primark, Steve thought he'd dive into some data, have a look and kind of compare the two from a visibility perspective. And interestingly, B&M is 10 times more visible. It is a massive difference between the two, even without offering the home delivery in the case of the towels category. So yeah, Primark are kind of being left in the dust if, if they're not you know, consciously trying to do this from an SEO perspective. They're not really making that effort to push things through and compete with, you know, we touched on House of Fraser and Next and all that kind of stuff. Some of the big players who are doing really well in SEO compared to Primark seemingly dragging along behind. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they're going to benefit from just the amount we speak about them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should get a sponsorship from Primark as well. <laughs> so you can check out all of Steve's analysis on the Primark website by going to systrix.com slash blog. And of course, as I said, if you log into your Systrix account, you can check out the on-page feature there with the new lovely pre-checked domains for you. So I thought it would be nice to finish off the podcast, like the last almost half, I guess, talking about the era state of link building report, which I absolutely adore. It's the third one that they've published. And essentially, for those that haven't seen it, it's thoughts and insights from 270 SEOs working across agencies, in-house roles, freelancers, so big, big agencies um, to kind of one-person bands and asking them a bunch of questions. Um, or Sorry, no, actually, well, polling people and then getting their analysis on the results, rather, is kind of the expert commentary there. And as usual, I found lots of things in there that have challenged my perceptions, shall we say, um, but, and to, that I found to, very surprising. To put it into perspective, listeners, Mark is being very polite here. <laughs> he, he nearly nearly filled the entire show notes doc with just commentary on the feedback in, in the link building report but yeah we're going to dive into it in some detail and kind of discuss a few things and see what we agree with what we disagree with and see if there's any interesting data in there so paddy moogan did a nice um kind of forward for the study i'll just read out his little kind of overview so he says paddy says one interesting insight is that despite fewer in-house seos saying that they outsource the link building compared to 2021. Demand for link building is still remaining strong as our budgets. Um, I don't think that surprises me much at all. Nope. So it's essentially, I would read that as companies are, again, another year taking SEO even more seriously. And the really important stuff like link building that we know is you know, really closely tied to you know, site content quality is, of course, being taken in-house when you've got the marketing team to do it. Yeah. Whereas, you know, when I was working in SEO, like, you know, 10 years ago, there was basically no one at most companies handling, you know, even online, let alone just, you know, search marketing and certainly not in an area that requires, you know, some some specialist tools and knowledge to do it yeah. effectively. Link I think the explosion of outreach, link building, digital PR, all the kind of different branches of that wider sector of SEO and digital marketing have really, really blown up over the last few years. I see more and more of it, whether that's social media, people I know, people I've seen people I went to school with who I had no idea were interested in digital marketing are suddenly like, 
I'm an outreach person or digital PR person at this company. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I don't think it's it's almost like a, an, a different side of accessibility. You don't necessarily need to be technical. You can come at it from a journalistic background. You can come at it from a writing background, all this kind of stuff. And yeah, I think it's fair to say link building is here to stay. We'll get into what the experts and various people think in the report. But yeah, it definitely seems to be still a big focus for many companies, individuals and uh, agencies as well. Yeah, I think that explosion you're talking about over the last few years has been, as as we kind of see reflected in the report, report a lot around digital PR yep. content stuff. Whereas, you know, people were sending probably more emails, I'd say, several years ago, but it was mainly kind of link exchange stuff that was you know that was probably like half of the emails people mm. sent and you don't tend to see that really anymore and that's actually um i think i saw it on there as a link building technique but it was very very low down with the hey why don't you link to me and i'll link to you and we'll see how that goes <laughs> so um i've just kind of randomly picked out a few questions from here that i thought were interesting so the the first one pretty obvious how do you build links so it's just people saying what techniques they use um, with the top answer at 68% being content marketing specifically to generate links, um, which I don't find particularly surprising. Nope. There's probably a little bit more to it than that in that, you know, to generate links basically means we need to make good content that people like yeah. As, a, yeah. as a whole. Make that shareable, interesting stuff rather than necessarily coming at it with an SEO focus or something like that. You're coming at it from a, this is something people are going to, going to want to cover from journalists and other publications yeah. and stuff like that. Now, basically everything on from here did surprise me. <laughs> so <laughs> at number two, we have competitor analysis and targeting their links, which is 54%. Now, I'm, I feel just immediately a bit like, so half the people that are building links aren't looking at where their competitors got links from and trying to get them <laughs> i find that shocking because it's like just a really easy thing to do in that you know if they're ranking above you and part of that mix is very likely going to be links okay well what kind of sites link to them and it's, it's telling you actually what kind of sites do search engines like to link to them because it's obviously made them rank and yeah. i just found that immediately surprising that pretty much half the people don't do that I don't know if it's how the, the polling exactly works. I don't know if it's like layered in terms of like priority of like, I do three out of the 10 options or you only got to pick one. I'm not sure. I assume it is kind of a prioritized list, right? So you're then weighting everything by that. But yeah, you would think that would be fairly like content gap analysis, backlink gap analysis, all that kind of stuff. Looking at competitors is fairly obvious. Like you yeah, would think I mean, like- It's, it's yeah. a fine. So, uh, I mean, my view on it strategically is, it's a finite thing because yeah, yeah, yeah. only have so many links and you're not making, you know, there's the argument that you're, you know, you should be focusing on additional value, things your competitors can't copy, all this kind of stuff. But if It almost feels like catch up rather than overtaking them. right? Yeah, absolutely. Ways, yeah. But if I'm going to race someone, I want to make sure I'm starting next to them, you know, as near <laughs> as possible rather than 100 meters back. Sure, so sure. At, le at least for me. And again, like, you know, the reason I was polite at the beginning of the podcast, as you put it about, you know, this section is because while some of these things are very different to how I do them, I obviously respect that people do have different ways. and I may not, you know, I may be missing something. Um, 
and I think that's what's great about this report. You know, I said I said to Paddy on Twitter, I was like, well done with this report, like, because some of the answers I think are wild. You know, I want to talk about them because it's just so different to yeah. how I do things. And that's the point of getting 270 people to contribute to it. Yeah, right? I think it's nice not to be in, because I do feel like sometimes I often get this, not necessarily in SEO, but sometimes in SEO, you get in a kind of echo chamber or bubble of like oh you're talking to all the people you work with and the other people you have worked with previously so you all have like similar backgrounds and stuff like this total credit to error here there's a lot of people of color there's a lot of women coming in here a lot of people with you know different representatives and and coming from different backgrounds i think that's really really interesting to get a wider scope of that and speaking here as two white dudes on a podcast yo (laughs) i think it's really interesting getting a kind of scope of the entire industry and again how much that has grown and how diversified the industry is now in a good way and yeah i think it's interesting kind of getting people's different perspectives and like you said the the expert commentary there they pull out the list of actual experts who kind of do the commentary there as well is a fantastic list of people you know some people coming from in-house stuff coming through to agency work and freelancers and everything in between directors through to more juniors to more technical people all this kind of stuff it's a really really great group of people and i think it helps me kind of zoom out a little bit and get a better perspective because i often feel like i'm kind of head down focusing on this one thing i'll be like oh yeah that is a thing that other people think works does it work maybe i should you know talk to mark talk to my colleagues talk to maybe i should you know see if there's an article or a answer from john Mueller on it or something like that already yeah it's a really healthy way to look at it because, again, on top of all that, there's probably like what, 20, 30 people in the SEO industry, at least online, that are super visible and are at most of the conferences and pretty much say, don't say the same thing, but they, they have their viewpoint on how things work. Yeah. And then yeah. that's obviously then amplified by people that do follow them. So it is easy, as you say, to blinker yourself to, to other things. So, yeah, great job on this report. I enjoyed reading it. Um, which brings me to the third thing <laughs> on this list, which is guest posting. Interesting. 47%. And that did surprise me because, uh, you know, I'm sure everyone who has an email address gets the, hi, I'm a guest poster. I have high DA sites. To, if you've you ever know, been on LinkedIn <laughs> and you have SEO or digital marketing in your job title, good Lord. <laughs> and, and, you know, guest posting is something specifically listed in the Google Webmaster Guidelines as a thing not to do um at scale yeah and it you know if it's kind of third on this list it makes me think that obviously there are people doing this at scale which is confirmed by the fact if we jump down a few more places we've got 31 percent of people saying yet yeah, they're totally on board with paid links um which now i'm obviously fully aware not naive that lots <laughs> of people still buy links and they still work and uh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely, they still work. Absolutely, they do. Again, in in terms of time scale, I don't think they're going to work long term. Sure, sure. But they definitely work. You know, probably in the life cycle of most agency yeah. engagements. But it it was higher than I expected. Still, sure. So yeah, I yeah. didn't expect almost one in three respondents to be like, "Yeah, we're paying for links." The, um, the one I was probably not necessarily most surprised by, the one that jumped out to me, and I think is something part of the product of that recent explosion of the digital PR side of things, is the reactive PR was only 46%. Because I feel like that is all I see covered on LinkedIn and Twitter. And again, that's probably part of you know who I follow and my echo chamber and stuff like that. But I think it's interesting. I would have thought that would have been higher than guest posting at this point. That seems to be 
want to be a phrase and to borrow from reactive PR, the hot topic, the the topical thing to kind of cover at the moment. So yeah, I, I was I was honestly expecting reactive PR to be higher than at least guest posting from my perspective. I would I would hazard a guess that it's just because it's harder to do than oh, something yeah, sure, like sure. guest posting because you know, with respect to people, anyone that does it, it, it's not very hard to get guest posts published. It's like the, <laughs> there's people like throwing themselves at you yeah. to, to allow you to do it. Um, whereas reactive PR, obviously, yeah, that you need to be fast. You could, hence, you know, as it says on the tin, reactive. Um, so if you're in-house, you need to have the flexibility to do that. And it's just hard to come up with those angles, put something together, have the resource to do it and get it across. Yeah. So I'd imagine a lot of reactive PR stuff is probably... There's a, it's skewed towards agencies answering they're doing that. My guess would be, and maybe less in-house. Yeah, yeah, I would guess so as well. So an, another question I pulled out is, do you maintain a Google Search Console disavow file for the domains that you're responsible for? And we had yes at 51% Ooh. and no at 49%. Close. Yeah, I've got, I've got trauma for 51-49 split votes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, did you have any thoughts on this one? Yeah, so it's a thing I've experienced in in previous roles and things like that, where disavowing links was like a regular practice, like going through and just checking and like from filtering out the toxic links and all that kind of stuff. And as I've kind of grown in my SEO career, it really seems like a waste of time to me these days because and I know we've talked about the sophistication of Google in so many ways and them updating their spam report that we covered a few weeks ago as well and how they claim they're filtering out, you know, so much stuff in the SERPs, like 99% of spam is all filtered out and all this kind of stuff. And we're clearing out all these links and we know not to do this and blah, blah, blah. In fact, there was a tweet not too long ago from John Mueller, again, I always mention John. Uh, and he said, like, what is a toxic link? Like, how are you defining that? And it's tools like SEMrush or some of these other, like, multi-purpose tools that do content and technical and link building and all and backlink profiling and all this kind of stuff that you end up getting like oh you've got a 35 percent toxic backlink profile it's like what does that mean how how are you classifying this and then you use another tool and it's like everything looks fine like well then that's there should be some sort of like not necessarily objectivity that's very difficult to have but some sort of parity across the industry, right? And I think the fact that there is that such close confusion there, some people still think disavowing things is important. Some people don't. I are on the side of it's kind of a big waste of time. Like I said, I've done it in the past um, as, as practice when I was in the very early days when I was learning SEO and stuff. But yeah, these days I, have, I haven't addressed it with any of my clients like in the last like couple of years, basically. Yeah, I, I think it's an interesting topic, especially like you said about, um, yeah, ob objectivity is probably not, possible but a lot of these companies that have their own ways of measuring toxicity spam they're kind of like yeah well it's our proprietary way of calculating it so they don't actually tell you so it then becomes harder to trust those metrics yeah. especially when they don't agree with each other yeah i had an example of this on a previous client funnily enough we saw a massive spike in really spammy traffic coming through a link and then and the client saw this in one of the reports and they were like oh can you keep an eye on that for us? And I was like, yeah, no problem. Chances are in like a week or two, maybe a month or so, by the time we next come around to this reporting call, it will have sorted itself out basically. And lo and behold, it did. I didn't need to touch the disavow file. I didn't need to do any of that stuff. Google kind of sorted itself out and kind of worked out what was going on, found that crap site and then filtered the rubbish out. So yeah, I think a lot of people do it as kind of a... <sighs> 
again, not to talk about agencies that do this, but like box checking exercise, it makes it look like you're doing something for That's a, a client. Deliverable, isn't it? It's yeah. a deliverable, yeah. You say like, oh, we added 12 new URLs to the or domains to the disavow file. And you can go and check it on Google Search Console. Yay. It's like, yeah. But I, honestly, I think at, at this point, again, obviously my opinion, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I think you can use your time better elsewhere to have a greater effect in terms of reviewing backlink profiles and even doing like competitor analysis and stuff like that we were talking about earlier seeing what good stuff and what bad stuff competitors are doing it's a far more worthy use of time of reviewing backlinks than doing disavow files in my opinion yeah and i mean that was my kind of take from that with such a high proportion maintaining those i and obviously i don't know precisely what maintaining means but my thought would be there's probably better uses for your time now i I don't think I fully buy the Google line of there's nothing to worry about. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and speaking to some people who have very kindly shared data with me where they've showed me what they think is an impact of toxic links. There does seem to be like various time delays with Google working out what is bad and what they should discount and what they shouldn't. And obviously there is a need for disavow files sometimes. Like if you got a penalty, for instance, yeah. and you can't remove the links, like that's generally when you'd use it. But yeah, like you... I'm very skeptical about just ongoing kind of use of it. Yeah, the um, word maintain there, I think, yeah. is interesting. So, for example, um, for those of you who are like new to a client or new to a, an in-house job or anything like that, it's something I will do as part of the onboarding process just to check they have not disavowed something that is quite nice. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> but like accidentally done a thing of like, oh, we meant to do it for this URL, but it ended up doing the whole domain or whatever it was. That's happened to me a couple of times. So I think it is still worth being aware of that and knowing it's there and having access to it. But I don't think regular maintenance, and like you said, unless something really drastic happens, I don't think regular maintenance of a disavow file is necessarily required. So on to our next question, which is, do you use any metrics to measure the authority and or quality of a link? And then it says, we asked our respondents to select which metrics they use to measure the authority and or quality of a link. And the most popular answer was 67% of the votes was domain rating by Ahrefs. This was followed by domain authority from Moz, which 42% of SEOs used to measure the authority or quality of a link. Now, I just want to caveat this with, I thought when I read this question, I interpreted it as um, how would you measure the quality maybe of a place that you could get a link? And in the comments from some of the experts, they were talking about using it to measure the links kind of that they had got. And we clarified this on Twitter. I think it's meant to mean the question, the former. So before you you get the link like is this a worthy place to get a yeah link should i be targeting this publication yeah. is it worth my time and weighing up different options yeah. there right so obviously we've got dr from ahrefs domain authority from mars no surprises there um you know they're kind of the big ones i was i was a little bit um crestfallen to see my beautiful majestic <laughs> come in fourth with trust flow I, I know it sounds like i'm sucking up here but i'm a majestic boy as well even yeah. before i started working <laughs> at canada for the record majestic was my go-to backlink tool i have been using hrefs more i'm not gonna lie recently over the last couple of weeks couple of months but yeah majestic has always been my go-to trust flow citation flow all that kind of stuff from from majestic i mean i'll be with i'll be real with you majestic like the ahrefs interface is nicer than yours yeah, i'm afraid is, yeah. and their marketing is better i'm sorry to say <laughs> i still think your metrics are better and the data I get from Majestic is better. 
but a lot of especially the newer people in SEO um, just haven't heard even of Majestic. Yeah. Speeds. It's all Ahrefs. I, th- I think part of that is, yeah, the fact that both SEMrush and Ahrefs are those multi-tool things, right? So if you're starting out small, if you're going off on your own thing and doing it on your own site, or you've just started becoming a freelancer by yourself, you want a one-size-fits-all kind of, I yep. will cover myself with a bit of everything and I can offer everything to a client or everything to my site. Instead of having a subscription to Majestic and a subscription to this and a subscription to that, you can kind of cover all your content and all your backlinks and all the different kinds and your technical stuff with one of these kind of multi-purpose tools. So yeah, I think that that's a big factor in this of a lot of people because this survey is so widespread. I think that factor certainly comes in here. Seeing Moz, Hrefs and SEMrush, both they're kind of in the top five. Having those big kind of multi-purpose tools makes sense. That's a very good point. Yeah. Let's talk about number three, shall we, Mark? Because <laughs> yeah. this is... Uh, and I don't think I would have guessed this answer would be in here because it would never occur to me in a million years. And I'm building up quite a big... Yeah, I'm building up quite quite a lot here, listeners. But, Mark, can you reveal to the listeners what the third highest with 24% is? Yeah, it's internal proprietary metrics. What the bloody hell does that mean? <laughs> well, I'm I'm hoping, again, from the... Again, I put this on Twitter being like, who are these agencies that are making up their own metrics for measuring the quality of links because that's our agencies creating their own link indexes and then like it's an what incredibly hard thing to do to yeah um i'm i'm hoping this, this link was a 9 out of 10 says me <laughs> congratulations client you got a 9 out of 10 like how does that what so i'm i'm thinking obviously proprietary might mean like cuz my comment on this was why has nobody said traffic because generally if you are getting traffic from a link. I know this sounds really basic. Obviously, if it's from a relevant site and you're getting traffic from it, it's probably a good link because people are visiting that page in enough um, in enough volume for them for you to measure the traffic. And um, the link placement is obviously relevant because people are clicking on it. Hopefully, they're finding what they're looking for. And the link's in a prominent enough place. Segue into you know uh, reasonable surfer kind of territory there, but it's in a reasonable place that obviously Google can can see that. I'm hoping maybe, and again, someone commented this, that some people may have answered proprietary metrics when they meant traffic. Um, I can't tell that because I guess proprietary in terms of nobody else is allowed to see that so, metric. I guess, but, so that, again, we're coming around to that kind of interpretation of this question, yeah. right? The You can't measure traffic from a, like you said, if you're weighing up a different options of, oh, throughout this campaign, we're going to target 10 publications. Here's a list of 100. Which 10 are you going to target? Do you just go for the 10 with the most DR? You can't measure traffic that way unless you're literally getting the like third party metrics of like, oh, yeah, they have, they get average monthly traffic of this much on Hrefs or SEMrush or something like that. Are you saying that that should be a factor there where you're thinking about like the traffic that the site is getting? as a whole or like the potential traffic you could get from that link but you can't measure that at the yeah so before the stage of placing that link right exactly so when i looked at the expert kind of commentary on this was when i thought we're talking about links after they've been placed so yes. how do we tell it's a good link and obviously my first go-to is the basic well is that link getting us any traffic and i was kind of like why isn't that on this list um i think some people did interpret it as the other is it a good place to get a link? And yeah, traffic wouldn't worry me as much then if we're looking at, obviously I'd like to know if that website, that domain gets any traffic because obviously if the domain gets no traffic, it's probably not going to be a great (laughs) place to have a link. 
but you know the other ones are the other third party compound metrics like dr and domain authority whatever are okay trust flow ways to do this but it you know if lots of agencies or 24% of in-house whatever people are making their own link quality metrics up like that's news to me because that's that requires a huge amount of data and like highly trained expert people to yeah. make those correlations and keep them up to date because yeah. obviously all the levers that Google are pulling are, are changing all the time. Yeah, so there's a comment here from uh, one of the experts, Ryan Jones, here that I think is skirting along the sort of line here. There is an option for none, by the way, which I think is more closely related to Ryan's answer here. But to take a little excerpt here, he says, um, it still bugs me as an SEO to see that there are large numbers of people who use third-party metrics like DR and DA to measure the quality of links they build. Sure, they're helpful metrics to give you a vague idea as to how authoritative a link is, but it is in no way the be-all and end-all. Totally agree with you there, Ryan. 100%. They're all third-party metrics. Everything should be taken with a pinch of salt, all that kind of stuff. Here's where it gets interesting. I personally don't use metrics like these at all in my link building. If I get a link from a website that gets traffic, there you go, Mark, is relevant to the content I'm producing and has a good chance of driving more traffic to my site, I'm a happy SEO. That's that's a. I think that's a, that's a good way of doing it. And I wonder if Ryan would fall under that internal proprietary metrics category, depending on how he answered this specifically. I would interpret his answer as as none, but I th- I could see how that could be classified as as long as it is driving traffic, blah blah blah, could be seen as another further metric, and maybe all those kind of other answers are kind of lumped into that one. I don't know. I wonder how many people would have actually answered yes. I use internal and proprietary metrics, and like like you said, there's not the capa- we know there's not the capacity. We would have heard about that in the industry if we knew there was capacity for that in the industry. If other you know a bunch of agency owners personally, like you would know. If yeah, I mean, people well, were doing it on like, scale. if you're using, yeah, we them, have a team of a hundred link builders who are keeping this index up to date. I don't know. If you use them, tell me. I'd love, <laughs> I'd love to hear about it and how they work. Yeah, um, I'm very interested. <laughs> uh, cool. Let, let's look at a couple more. Um, so Which we. Would you like to use? Cool. So let's look at a couple more. Um, what primary KPI do you use to measure the effects of your link building efforts? interesting question very interesting question and the top result we had with 53% is rankings followed by search visibility followed by volume of linking domains um i thought it was an interesting question because we track all of those things and personally what we use as the primary kpi changes over time yeah because Obviously, everyone wants, and it's further down here, like 13% said conversions. So that would be lovely. It, yeah. I mean, <laughs> conversions for me is like, we hopefully will be seeing an impact on conversions, but it's not like a KPI I would own as an SEO because there's too many, for me, too many variables outside of our control generally, because like we're not a CRO agency. Yeah. We, you know, we, we were talking about attribution the other day, weren't we, for one of our clients, and talking yeah. about how long that process can be from people going, oh, they come in through a link, and then they'll go back and then find you again through organic and then come through a paid thing. And then there's, there's, it's incredibly difficult to really directly correlate. And like you said, especially in the short term, a this having this link on this publication led to a conversion is an incredibly difficult thing to measure. But yeah, I think rankings and search visibility make a lot of sense. Again, they're the kind of things you can 
again, once it's all bedded in and you give it enough time and all that kind of stuff, that's the kind of stuff you can actually measure. And I think the fact that it's the primary KPI is it's a measurement here. This is a thing we are actively measuring and things like rankings as SEOs, that's something we're keeping an eye on anyway, hopefully, <laughs> for clients and things like that. So I think that's a thing you can easily kind of pull out as that's the obvious thing that has been affected by this. And you can also then try and correlate that. Oh, this URL has started ranking. That's the URL that got the link through the campaign. There's a much more, there's a much clearer path there and correlation, in at least in the short term, drawing between things like visibility and rankings and, and getting links. And it's what's happened. It's what happens first as well, because yes. people obviously say like, oh, okay, well, no, we want sales. We're only interested in sales from organic or even, um, you know, even traffic from organic, which is perfectly reasonable. But if, if you know, you're doing SEO and you have, a, well, just say for argument's sake, we're monitoring for ease, like 10 like rankings, whatever we want to improve. And we move from position 70 to 60 to 50th to 30th to 20th to 15th, you know, over. 12 weeks that's amazing progress and especially if you've tracked it as you know there hasn't been movement before that but that's going to result in basically no extra traffic almost yeah basically negligible and no extra sales so you could say oh well the seo has been a complete failure and it's like no we are making measurable improvements but you don't see the traffic until you start you know crashing into the front page and taking other people's lunch off their table and (laughs) eating it in front of them and yeah chucking the remains on the floor yeah and that, that's actually why I quite like some of these. So rankings make sense to me. It's a really good, I think, initial KPI to track. You certainly don't want to hitch yourself to it for the kind of long haul. We, you know, you need to look at revenue or whatever it is, leads and traffic. Search visibility was an interesting one as well, because with rankings, obviously, you're only limited to whatever you've set up to rank track. Search visibility, you know, takes into account traffic volumes. It also takes into account normally things like number of keywords, so it gives you that broader scope for you can generically say, you know, we're being found on more stuff than we used to. Yeah. Not necessarily the five key phrases that the CEO is checking every two days <laughs> on his laptop from home. And to be honest, the other ones make sense as well, which is, you know, volume of linking domains, volume of links. If you if you're measuring link building efforts, it makes sense to track how many links did we build. Again, yeah. The the phrase KPI here. I think you've got to measure something, right? Otherwise, say, for example, you do a campaign for a client and they're like, oh, yeah, so you spent that much of this month's budget on it. How did it go? And you're like, I don't know. Exactly. How many links did it build? Don't know. Didn't track it. How much traffic has it brought? Don't know. Didn't track it. How are the rankings changed? Don't know. Didn't track <laughs> that either. It's like you need to measure something. And, and again, kind of going back to Ryan's point here of like, take all of this with a pinch of salt, external stuff or third-party data, all that kind of stuff. But actually getting the numbers for the number of links you've gotten from this thing is a way to quantify that. And because SEOs, as we know, whether you're in-house, freelance, agency, you're going to be reporting to somebody. And if you want to know about more about that, you can go and listen to my interview with Tom Critchlow from a, couple, a few months ago, talk about reporting to different people in different levels and different seniority and all that kind of stuff. You need to know who you're talking to and a way of kind of quantifying that data and saying this has been a successful campaign this is why you know as you said mark this is a way to show seo success without saying you've made this much more money we're making progress here is to actually put numbers to it and say yeah this book this built 25 links this one built six links this one built 150 links that's a way of quantifying it that you kind of need in the seo reporting process whether you like it or not absolutely absolutely and there's actually 
some stuff later in the report as well about um, whether people guarantee certain amounts of links or have m metrics, um, which, which most people don't. Um, but that's an interesting part of the report. We won't dive into it uh, yet, but I, I found that quite interesting as well. Because obviously, unless you are paying for links, you can't really guarantee them. Yeah. Because um, a lot of them are based on kind of coverage and negotiation. Yeah. Uh, let's whittle through these last two. I found this one interesting. So because I haven't seen this question asked before. Um, if you needed to put a time estimate on how long it takes you to secure a single link, how long would you say it takes? And the most popular answer was one to two hours per link. But there is spread here quite evenly yeah. between less than an hour per link to 10 hours plus per link. And I think, to be honest, it, it's a tricky question because it's going to bleed over all of the different types of link building that we saw. Again, there was like a wide spread over. So like guest posting, you're not going to be spending 10 hours per link. Yeah. But high quality, trying to get a journo to write something for you may take a long time. Exactly. Or if you're going for reactive PR stuff, uh, shout out to Ferry Gazzoni, who does amazing work and covers it all on LinkedIn, how he does it. He always talks about like, oh yeah, I did this thing and it got 450 links. I'm like, oh my God. And he's like, yeah, it's just a simple piece of data. I did it in 10 minutes. I'm like, what is his calculation of like, then you take the time estimate per link for the kind of stuff that Ferry is doing would be, you know, seconds or minutes even. <laughs> so a complete opposite end of the scale there. And like you said, if you were going for something that's really in depth, you're building this big like guide piece for a journalist to really delve into, that can take a really long time to get that really polished and exactly how you want it and exactly how the journalists want it as well. So yeah, you've really got two kind of polar opposite ends pulling at the averages here, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. And the last question I pulled out on here was, in your experience, how has the demand for link building services changed over the last 12 months? And we had very, very much leaning in favor, 59% that it's increased, um, which again, I think I would agree with. There's a, there's a small 9% saying it's decreased. Um, and yeah, everyone else kind of in the middle, but that that yeah goes along certainly i think with our agency at least experience of the the demand in general i think for seo has gone up and i think link building just kept up with that so i don't know if it's yeah. link building specifically the demand's gone up but more people are after it because more people are after seo yeah definitely definitely so you can get the full report um, from Error. Of course, we will link to it on the show notes. Which and there's a lot more data there in there. There is a lot more data in there. We have scratched the surface. So yeah, we highly, yeah. highly recommend going and checking that out. And you've got as well the kind of expert opinions on those results, kind of like how we've been given, um, but multiple people for each one. But they'll be at search.withcanada.co.uk. So let's finish off. We've done some heavy data stuff. We've dived around SERP features and a few other things. Just spend a couple of minutes talking about a lovely little visualization, shall we? Because Google have released the evolution of search and search throughout the years, basically like a, an entire history of Google and their technologies and their systems and algorithms and all this kind of stuff over the last 26 years, starting all the way back in 1996 with things like PageRank and then registering Google.com as a domain all the way through to the most recent stuff like multi-search and mum and Bert and all the kind of like really sophisticated machine learning and AI stuff we've seen. I found it really, really interesting as a person who is relatively new, you know, 
I've only been in SEO for like four years, really, at this point, something like that. So coming to that from me being like, oh, what was SEO like back in 2008? And what did Google change in 2006? What did they introduce? Sitemaps weren't really a thing until much later on, and it wasn't included in Search Console. Search Console wasn't a thing straight away. I find it really, really interesting. And it is presented beautifully. It's a really nice scrollable kind of really long timeline you can click through, you can scroll through, there's interactive little bits, it's visualized beautifully, as we've come to expect from Google. At this point, they have a pretty fantastic data visualization team and a team of designers over there. But yeah, I thought it was really, really interesting. As someone who is relatively new to SEO. The actual, so when you're like, oh, they made an interactive thing, I was a bit like, all right, let's, <laughs> let's see. But it's actually really, first, it's really impressive to look at. And secondly, it shows how much I've forgotten <laughs> just in terms of going back through it, being like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, and then it's weird to think that some of the things we take for granted now weren't a thing. Oh, absolutely. Even like yeah. five years ago, six years ago. So you could someone could easily do like a presentation just based on this timeline. It's a really fun little thing. Um, might be nice for even like onboarding people into like junior SEO roles, just giving them a bird's eye view of this is the at least gives them an overview of the trajectory Google is doing, what kinds of tools they're giving us, what kind of data yeah. they're, they're taking away from us would be sort of maybe some good footnotes to add on that as well. Yeah. But yeah, re really nice, really nice um, timeline. Again, I think it's that zooming out and getting the bigger perspective thing, right? Like thinking about how many shoulders of giants we're standing on as SEOs now in 2022 and or going all the way back to Larry Page and Sergey Brin founding the whole thing and starting it all and coming up with page rank and rank brain and all this kind of stuff you hear these terms thrown around and often casually in seo conversations if you are newer i think that's a great idea mark if you're newer to the industry and or if you're onboarding new people there somebody's learning seo for the first time go and read the google docs from back in the day of how page rank was established that's a bit heavy it's a lot of paperwork to go through but this is a really brilliant snapshot of what has happened over the last 26 years. And obviously it's Google focused and all that kind of stuff. We know search isn't just Google, but realistically. Kind of is. <laughs> kind of is. At the moment. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I, I'll leave Except a link for when that. when that Apple search engine comes out that we spoke about that never appeared. Yeah, we teased it and they were like, and you can search on your browsers. It's like, cool. Okay. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, I will leave a link for that in the show notes at search.withcanda.co.uk and have a scroll around at your own leisure. So that's all we have time for this week as i said at the top of the show i will be back next week with my interview with cindy crumb mark will not be back he gets another week off but please do subscribe and check that out next week it is a fantastic interview with cindy all about mobile seo and funnily enough we talk about mobile seo and kind of the history of it even predating smartphones which kind of blew my mind at the time so if you want to learn about the history of mobile seo and how it's evolved over the last 12 13 years or so i highly recommend out next week's episode my interview with cindy crumb until then have a lovely week and thank you very much for listening